open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3, and you can hold your place there and turn to Ephesians 6. You'll notice in your bulletin as well, there's a little half sheet of paper there that uh, talks about the Christian family. That's a, I just copied that right out of my Reformation Study Bible. You could read that for your uh, enjoyment later. I think it just gives a really good framework for all that we've been saying in the last several weeks in regards to Christian family. And so uh, don't read it while I'm preaching. That would be rude. You can read it later, please. Unless the sermon is really bad and boring, then read it as much as you want. Colossians 3, I'll read from verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And then over to Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, to bring them, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And Father, as we read from your word, we need your spirit to direct us and lead us and guide us into all truth. Well, we pray that uh, all that said this morning, Father, would um, direct us to how we can look to you for help in our parenting. And for those of us who have parented and are uh, finished, I pray that we'd be able to take this information as well from your word and apply it to our lives now and possibly share with others all the great things that you're doing uh, and have have commanded us in Christ's name we pray amen uh, most of you know if you've been here for any length of time that we're working our way through the book of Colossians and uh, last Sunday we started looking at the idea of parents raising their children in the Lord I want to begin by laying out just a few things that are not going to be preaching points, um, but I hope they'll be helpful. Uh, it's going to take a while to get through this passage because I have to build a foundation before I get there, and so my introduction will be longer than usual, but I want to just start with these five statements. Um, first, clearly you're going to find out as we look at this that what we're saying this morning is not exhaustive. Um, we're not dealing with the topic of child rearing. We're preaching through the book of Colossians, and we've, we've bumped into this verse about raising our kids in the Lord. We've moved over to Ephesians 6 to, to have a more complete view of what the Bible says, but we're not pausing and doing a long, drawn-out um, topic of child rearing. We're trying to stick to the text, allowing for Ephesians 6 for more clarification. The subject is vast. And if anybody has any additional questions or concerns, uh, please feel free to ask. We would all readily admit that parenting is not easy. We all need help, and for those of you who are still in the throes of it, uh, there's plenty of help around here, and please continue the conversation if there's anything that comes up that you have any questions about. Secondly, there is no magic formula to raise kids who love Christ and walk faithfully with God. You can't say, if you do A, B, and C consistently, then you'll end up with a believing child. There's some who try to make it that formulaic, but it's just not true. 
In fact, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 1. And we'll be back to Ephesians in a moment. In Isaiah 1, the prophet Isaiah begins his prophetic ministry by calling out the sinful, rebellious nation of Judah. At this time, the nation had prospered economically and the nation had, prom- had prospered militarily. But they'd forgotten God. And in verse 2, I'm just going to read one verse, Isaiah writes something interesting. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And what has the Lord said? He says this, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Now, certainly the main point of this passage is not about parenting, but it's worth noting that God led and directed and disciplined and taught and loved his people, yet he himself makes the declaration that the children that he reared, the children that he brought up, have rebelled against him. We know that God's a perfect father, and though a perfect father, he's saying he has rebellious children. And if you want to read further about that for your homework, you can, on your own, read through Ezekiel chapter 18, and you'll find and you'll notice that God clearly shows that it's possible for a righteous father to have a wicked son, it's possible for a wicked father to have a righteous son, and in each case, God holds the wicked person accountable for their own sin. And the assumption is that a righteous father raised his son in a way that pleased the Lord, and yet the son rebelled against the Lord anyway. We know in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that the prophet Samuel had sons who did not follow his ways. And all the point I'm making is there's no promised formula that guarantees that godly parents will always produce automatically godly children. Now, as soon as I say that, I want to talk really fast with a big however. And this is where you have to listen carefully. Though there's no formula, there's still a blueprint to follow. And the blueprint to follow is in the Bible that's open before you. It's not unusual for young parents to say something like, you know, I bought a brand new car with all these gadgets or a brand new TV or a brand new sound system and I got all these gadgets, but I have a manual and the manual has explained everything about it and now I understand it. But then they'll say something like, but when I brought this tiny little baby home, when I brought this little creature, I never got a manual. Yes, you did. The manual is God's word. Everything that we need to know for life and godliness is enclosed in the pages of Scripture, especially in regard to our parenting. God knows the human heart. God knows his own character. He's revealed himself to us so that we can, in fact, reveal him to our children. So moms and dads, get to know the manual. Get to know the author of the manual. The more you know about God and his word and his wisdom, then the more you'll know how to raise your children and point them to God Almighty. Uh, Number four, as we follow the blueprint, we trust in a sovereign God for the results. That's important. Because the outcome is not up to us. But we're commanded to model and to teach and discipline and pray and love and lead and evangelize our kids. 
in, in all evangelistic outreach. We water and we plant and God gives the increase and we trust in a sovereign saving God. This is part of the reason as parents we struggle when they, when we sometimes it's, it's easy to look back and a parent can honestly say, I've raised them all the same. Two are walking with the Lord and one's not. Or one's walking with the Lord and two are not. We rest in God's sovereignty as we fulfill his commands. Still trusting in God to move in the hearts of those who haven't trusted him. And then number five. uh, Christian parenting cannot be done without active involvement in a Bible-believing, Christ-centered local church. I'm going to go even further than that and say that Christian parenting without the church is not Christian parenting. It's just parenting. You're in a constant battle in your own life with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then you add the sinful nature of your child, and we will come back to that. And without involvement in a church, you are missing Christ-centered preaching. You're missing biblically-based singing. You're not being admonished. You're you're not part of the fellowship. You're not part of the encouragement and the rebuke and the exhortation to ground you and your children in the truth of God's word. Your absence from the body will have consequences. You reap what you sow. And and let me say, those of you who are Christian believing parents, you, you should want to be here to worship God through Christ and you just have your kids come along with you as simply the byproduct of your faith in the Lord Jesus. And even, even if the church does not have a children's ministry, never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit and and the Word of God in the lives of a young person. I think it was two years ago now where, where our daughter Courtney and Daniel and their four kids were here visiting our church and they have four boys. They have, at that time, had five-year-old twins, more or less, and then the two younger ones. And the oldest, Luke, likes to tell everyone he's the oldest because he's 30 seconds older than Zach. 30 seconds, but he's the oldest. And he must have been here on a, on a, on a, on a, on a communion service because he, I, I must have mentioned the Passover. Five years old and tells his parents, as we talked about the Passover during the service, that if there was no blood on the doorpost of the house in Egypt, the firstborn in Egypt died because they had no lamb's blood from the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost. And when he gets in the car and they're talking on the way home, he says, if I was in Egypt, I would have died. Now he's five. And what an opportunity for his parents at that moment to point him to the blood of the Lord Jesus who cleanses us of all sin. Never underestimate the power of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a young person and in what we would consider an adult congregation. So please remember that as well. God works constantly. Now as we get back to our text, I just leave those five points for now. I don't really think I'll be going back to them. But as we get back to our text in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, I want you to see how interesting it is how, how Paul frames the, the obedience of children and instruction of parents. He writes, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And he writes, but bring up children in the discipline and instruction 
of the Lord. I mean, clearly the entire setting of the home is to be structured and rooted and grounded in and of the Lord, demonstrating that all that we do in our homes is for His glory, for His kingdom, and to accomplish this, our parenting must be rooted and grounded in the truth of His Word. We can't do anything in the Lord or of the Lord without His guidance, without His direction, without His commands. So all of our lives are grounded in Scripture. All of our lives are grounded in His Word as we desire to please Him. It has a Joshua ring, doesn't it? You know, when Joshua is passing the baton to the next generation of leaders, and, he, and he's ready to go home, and his days are over, and be with the Lord himself, and he looks at the nation of Israel, and Joshua 24, he says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I hope that's your cry this morning. I hope your deepest desire is to honor the Lord by following His commands and seeking Him and loving Him and knowing Him regardless of if anyone else goes with you. I hope you can say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now last week we started where Paul started in Ephesians 6, 1 calling children to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then we looked at part of Ephesians 6, four fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And if you missed any of that, let me just encourage you to go to the church website and listen to that particular sermon to kind of get caught up. Uh, we have so much to cover today. I'm not going to summarize any of what I said last week, so we're just going to leave it there. Because today we're going to look at the second part of the command, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And this is how we know that the Bible is our child rearing manual. The only place to find the instruction of the Lord is in His Word. And since He created us and He fashioned us and He knows our hearts, we can trust His Word to lead us and to guide us into all things, especially as we raise the very children that He put into our lives. So let me begin by saying that the key component then of raising children in the instruction of the Lord is not psychology, it's not sociology, it's actually theology. Our theology, our knowledge of God affects how we raise our kids. And one of the first doctrines you need to understand as a parent is the doctrine of sin or the doctrine of total depravity. At conception, in the womb, the sin nature of our children is alive and well. And we know this because Romans 5, Romans 5 tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they represented the entire human race, and therefore their sin and all of its consequences were spread to all men. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And it's crucial in your understanding of God's word that you understand that when our children are born, we're not given good children who occasionally do evil, but scripture would bear out and confirm that we're given children with no good dwelling in them. 
whose hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. They're enemies of God, spiritually lost, blind, and dead. So it's more than appropriate when you pick up that little newborn to hold him or her in your arms and, and look at him and say, but you are so adorable. You're the cutest little sinner I have ever seen in my life. Until you look in the mirror and say, no, no, actually, that's probably the biggest sinner I've ever seen in my life. It's sobering. At least, it should be sobering. That the moment your son or daughter comes into the world, that God's calling you and holding you responsible to raise that child under his instruction, under his guidance, under his commands, and under his word. There's no other way to interpret the phrase of the Lord. You as a parent are the steward of another human being or several if you have a large family and you're given the privilege and the responsibility to introduce your child or your children to the God who created them and to point them to the Christ who died for them. That, above all else, is the single most important and the most significant thing you can do as a mom or a dad. I mean, at the end of the day, whether your kids excel in athletics, whether they make it to an Ivy League school, whether they get married and have a successful career and have children where your grandkids look so great on a picture postcard, all of that irrelevant if they don't know and love and fear God. We must take Jesus' words seriously. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What does it profit a child, one of your children, if, if they gain everything, if they're successful in everything, if they're more wealthy than anybody, if, if they're more famous than you've ever imagined, but they die and go to a Christless eternity? Our ultimate desire as parents is bringing up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And ultimately, our desire is redemption. It's seeing our unbelieving children becoming committed followers of Christ. And that's not a surprise to us, because that's the goal of the church. It's a story of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We know in the Old Testament that the Passover was celebrated on an annual basis, and it was a time for parents to tell their children about the great things God had done by protecting them, by passing over them, like Luke noticed when I mentioned that story earlier. The death, death angel did kill the firstborn in Egypt, but they passed over those in Israel because of the blood of the Lamb. And then God led them and directed them out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the Red Sea. And they had to talk about that event. They were designed to hear it and know it and hear and put their faith in the God of their fathers. When Joshua led the people across the Jordan, he purposely told the, the leaders of the tribes to go into the Jordan and grab a big stone and carry it and put it on the side of the river. So every time our kids look back at that, we can tell them about our great God and how he delivered us. When the Israelites were commanded to celebrate the Feast of Booze, they were told to live in tents for a full week. They could remember how God had delivered them when they were sojourners and strangers in the land. All through the Old Testament, story after story after story and celebration so that they could tell the children about God and his works and his wonders and his attributes and his love 
and his faithfulness and his judgment against sin. You cannot force, coerce, or make a child trust Christ. But you can and you must bring the truth of the gospel, the truth they're sinners in need of a Savior upon their hearts and minds. That's the biggest part of bringing up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And in our case, as believers on this side of the cross, we're not talking to them about the Old Testament Passover. We're talking to them about Jesus, our Passover lamb, who came to take away the sin of the world, who died and rose again for their sin. Now, since it's our understanding, our understanding of sin and depravity is, is the is what moves us to a better understanding of our need for a Savior. And because the subject of sin is something that even the church is afraid to talk about, I'm just going to go a little further to explain this point. There was a time when even the secular world was aware of our children's bent toward evil. In 1926, the Minnesota Crime Commission reported this. 1926, Minnesota Crime Commission. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these, and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals. No knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulse actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. Some years later, Albert Siegel, a noted child psychologist, was quoted saying this, every civilization is only 20 years away from barbarism. 20 years is all we have to accomplish a task of civilizing the infants who are born into our midst each year. These savages know nothing of our language, our culture, our religion, our values, our customs of interpersonal relations. The infant knows nothing about communism, fascism, democracy, civil liberties, the rights of political and ethnic minorities, respect, decency, ethics, morality, conventions, and customs. The barbarism must be tamed if, civiliz if civilization is to survive. I think it's Bodhi Bauckham who used to say that God made them cute so you wouldn't kill them. God made them small so they wouldn't kill you. But here are two secular individuals would confirm what the Bible declares is true about everyone who's ever been born. One source calls newborn infants savages. The other calls them barbarians. And neither of these reports use scripture in their findings, but we know what David said in Psalm 51. Behold, I was created in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This doesn't mean he was conceived out of wedlock. What he means is that at the moment he was conceived, he was a sinner, alienated from God, hostile toward God, an enemy of God. 
Paul reminds us in Romans 3 that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who doeth good, none seek God. The depravity of man does not mean we do all the sin we're capable of, but it does mean that we're capable of all sin. The seeds of every sin known to man rest within my soul and yours as well. So let me ask you about your theology. Do you have a biblical view in regards to the depravity of man? Do you have a biblical view in regards to the sinfulness of your children or even grandchildren? Do you understand they're bent toward evil? And do you understand the consequences for anyone who dies outside of Christ? And do you understand that Christ is the only Savior who can save them from God's wrath and hell and God's judgment? Deb and I did not teach our kids to get angry. We we didn't teach any of them to lie. We didn't line them all up and say, here's how you do it. We we didn't teach any of them to bite. We we had a biter. We had a liar. And we had one who had horrible outbursts. He'd he'd hold it all in for months and months and months. And then, whoa, (laughs) where'd all that come from? Our biter is a pastor in Wisconsin. I don't think he bites anymore. You can ask him when he comes to visit this summer. Our, our liar has written a couple Christian books and the Lord's using her and raising four kids. Uh, our, the, the <laughs> you have your stories and we have all our stories, don't we? But none of us taught our children how to bite, lie, and have outbursts of anger. Jesus tells us how polluted our hearts are in Mark 7. Go ahead and turn there. Mark 7. Again, we're just building the foundation for the doctrine of depravity so we have a good grasp of it. Mark 7. He's wrapping up a conversation with the Pharisees when they asked Jesus why he and his disciples didn't follow the tradition of the elders in regards to hand washing. uh, Jesus goes on to tell them it's not what's outside of us that defiles us, it's on the inside. He describes our hearts in verse 21. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Don't forget the word foolishness. We're going to come back to that again. Uh, This is the savagery. This is the barbarism that both the Minnesota Crime Commission and Albert Siegel are talking about, even though they had no idea they're confirming what the Bible says about mankind. And it's a parent's job, not just to deal with the surface behaviors of our children, it's it's getting to the root, it's getting to the heart, it's getting to the core. We don't want simple behavior modification. Our desire and our longing is for a transformed heart, which doesn't happen without that recognition of sin, repenting of that sin, and trusting in Christ as Savior. This is, this is why parenting is so hard. I hope those of you who are in the grandchildren stage don't forget how hard it was. It was laborious. While you find yourself, especially in those early years, you remember them correcting seemingly all day long, oftentimes disciplining all day long. If your children were born good and need a little guidance, 
That wouldn't be very hard. Even if they were born neutral, that wouldn't be very hard either. But our children, again, are born evil, and it's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job with no time off for holidays or vacation. In fact, we notice that their sin nature usually comes out even greater on the days in the calendar that are most significant. Birthdays, vacation, Christmas, anniversaries. I don't know how many times when we're in the middle of our early parenting, when one child would just ruin the day for the rest of the family because of his own sinful, selfish behavior. You don't have any vacations from your own sin nature, so why would your children take a day off for theirs? So the problem is they're sinners. The desire is for them to be saved from their sin and God's wrath and judgment. And we're called to direct our children to God through Jesus Christ. And the command we're given is in our text in Ephesians 6, 4, which can be broken down with just three words. We need to nourish, need to discipline, and we need to instruct. We'll start with that word nourish because that's really the word that comes from the phrase bring them up. That's how the word bring them up can be translated. If you look forward a little bit to Ephesians 5 or look backwards, verse 29, Paul uses the same word there when he says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, brings them up, and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Of course, here he's talking about how Jesus cares for the church, which is how husbands should care for their wives, which is how all of us care for our own bodies. This certainly would apply in the home. Uh, that uh, You have a home that's full of love and full of encouragement, full of involvement, full of provision, and have a genuine focused attention on the full orb needs of your children. The word nourish means to provide what is necessary for growth and health and good condition. It's caring for and encouraging the development of someone or something. It's taking the necessary time and effort and energy to invest in something that you love and care about. Now, Alistair Begg explains this word in more of an agricultural context. He would say something, if you have something like a plant to grow or to be nourished in growth, it needs adequate food, it needs nutrients, it needs soil, it needs water, it needs sun, it needs time. And in regards to our children, it's knowing what they need, giving them what they need, not what they want, and looking at the long term, the long investment of bringing them up according to God's word. Living things that are not intentionally nurtured will never grow or develop. And the intentionality in this text comes here in these next two words. Bring them up or nurture them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now the word here for discipline carries the idea of administering painful consequences or other disadvantages upon someone for their disobedience as part of a process of improving someone's character or action. It's a great definition. You're using the discipline that God has prescribed in his word in order for your kids to learn discipline and obedience, to have their character improved by the discipline. That's not a surprise, because this is exactly how God deals with all of his children. This is how he deals with us as his adult children. Turn with me to Hebrews 12 for a moment. 
Now, for your homework, I want to encourage you to read verses 1 through 11 on your own. Hebrews 12, read through 1 through 11 on your own. And when you do, you'll notice that God disciplines us in a way that this word is defined. He does bring painful consequences to his children for their good. And the discipline is designed to improve our character, to conform us into his image that we might know him and seek him. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Even as adults, God brings painful consequences to us to train us, to, to, to help us, to, to bring about obedience in us, to make us more righteous, to make us more holy, to improve our character, so to speak, to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus. And parents are called upon to do the same thing in the lives of their children. And in parenting, sometimes the painful consequences that we're asked to deliver according to God's word means we have to take the board of education and use it on the seat of knowledge. Remember, God has put a savage, a barbarian in your home, and God's calling upon you to use discipline to teach and, and add structure to your children's lives. Children are required to obey their parents, and we are required by God to discipline when they, them when they do not. So you have to teach them to eat at the dinner table when they don't like their peas. You have to teach them manners when they throw their food over the floor. You have to train them to go to bed at a time when they don't want to go and stay in bed. You have to correct and discipline them when they steal toys from others or when they don't want to get dressed or undressed. And you have to discipline them when they're mean, destructive, and harm others. You're... you're Dealing with their sin nature, aren't you? And it's certainly in these younger years of childhood where spanking is more prevalent. And the day should come when the spankings subside and even cease. And other forms of discipline will begin to take over. Being isolated or, or adding more chores or taking things away. You know your children and you know what works as well. And quite honestly... Some children require this more than others, but don't let them fool you. Across the board, all kids are rebellious, all are self-willed, all are defiant, all are sinful, yet some will express this more openly than others and obviously will be the one that receives more spankings. Everybody has a house, someone in their house that that's happened to. I won't tell you which child is ours, uh, but she might tell you when she comes. I have, a, I have a big tangent going on from my mind, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refrain. I don't have to tell you that spanking is seen by our secular culture as outdated, as abusive, and ineffective. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics, last I checked, has a statement against spanking, and according to one source I saw, spanking is actually illegal in 38 countries. Ultimately, or unfortunately, the way they describe spanking, I think, is part of the problem. Because they put it under the same category as hitting and striking and punching and slapping and abusing. 
Now, as a parent, you have to be discerning to know when your child is rebellious or there may be another issue. I know one set of parents uh, who spanked their child for what they thought was rebellion when they're having a real difficult time potty training him. They discover later that the poor, poor guy was constipated. It was painful to go. You just have to have wisdom and be really clear that what you're dealing with is really rebellion and you have to know your child. So we're not trying to create people who are going to come out here uh, with their guns blaring, so to speak. But scripture is clear that a paddle or a similar object used properly on the hind end is not abusive. And scripture speaks very clearly about the importance of spanking and its ultimate effects. I said earlier, the manual for child ruin is God's word. And if the one who created the universe, if the one who sustains the universe, if the one who created every individual who knows the human heart and mind and will, and he commands us to discipline our children by using an object on their bottom, then we should follow his commands. I'll read a few verses from Proverbs. If you don't have time to jot the whole verse down, just jot the reference. You can look for it later. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs twenty-nine fifteen: The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs thirteen fourteen: Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 29.30 Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. Proverbs 23.13 and 14 Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. And the King James states there, you'll save his soul from hell. The theological word book of the Old Testament defines the rod in Proverbs as, quote, the symbol of discipline and failure to use the preventive discipline of verbal rebuke and the corrective discipline of physical punishment will end up in the child's death. Clearly, the implication is physical death and eternal death in hell. To summarize these few verses, we'd say the hearts of children are bound with folly and sin. There's our doctrine of depravity again, and this time in the Old Testament. And it's the appropriate use of God's form of discipline that drives sin away from the child's heart. It gives our children wisdom. It proves our love for him. And it's designed to cleanse them and to keep their souls from hell. Not to be done in anger. It's not to be done in frustration. Not to be done excessively, but it's to be done lovingly and correctively and restoratively. And in most cases, usually a few good swats is all that's necessary. You're dealing with their sin. And probably the most common form of sin will be when they disobey you. And it's important that you teach them that they must obey and their disobedience is sin. But direct disobedience is not the only reason to discipline a child. It's not the only thing that you can be labeled as foolishness from the scriptures. If you took a strong concordance, look up the word folly or foolishness, you, you'd find multiple definitions and multiple descriptions of what that means. I mean, the book of Proverbs is a tremendous resource 
for, for us as we deal with the folly and the foolishness that's bound up in the heart of our child. Whether you're a young mom, older mom, dads, all of us to, to, to take the initiative to, to read the book of Proverbs through as a habit. There's 31 chapters. You could read a chapter a day. You could read it through once a month, and it would be tremendously helpful as Solomon helps us guide our lives through God's wisdom from his word. And when you do that study, you'll discover that lying, stealing, anger, temper tantrums, and abusing others can all be described as foolish behavior. I mean, in a sense, all of those things violate the Ten Commandments. You you are actually God's representative when they break the Ten Commandments to bring his judgment upon them. And in the process, you're delivering their soul from hell, which moves us to the next part of the command that are bring our kids up in the instruction of the Lord. Because our discipline is not always, it's not punitive, it's not always corporal, it's not always physical, it has to be instructive. Because Proverbs says it's the rod and reproof that give wisdom. And part of keeping them from hell and judgment and God's wrath, as you discipline them, is you instruct them in God's word. By teaching them the gospel, by bringing the bad news of sin and the good news of Christ to bear upon them. So if they lie, you discipline them for their lying, and you tell them that lying is sin. They're taking things from their siblings, you tell them that taking things from others is sin. When they have outbursts of anger, that's sin too. Your self-centeredness is sin. And when you explain this to them, what are you doing? You're bringing the law to bear upon their souls. You see, we evangelize our children the same way we evangelize adults. We teach the law and its consequences, praying that the Holy Spirit moves and convicts their hearts so they'll come to the place where they want a solution. Uh, Jesus did this with a woman at the well, didn't he? The woman in, in Samaria, Jesus is talking to her, finds out, he tells her that you've had five husbands, and the one she's now with is not her husband. He's confronting her immorality. Jesus did this with a rich young ruler and told him to go sell everything. He's dealing with his covetous heart. He brings the law to bear upon their conscience. The Samaritan woman responds in faith, goes and tells the whole town about Jesus. The rich young ruler walks away sadly. He wouldn't repent of his covetousness. No matter how old a person is, 5 or 50, 8 or 80, they'll never cry out for a Savior unless they know that they're sinners. And the bringing them up in the instruction of the Lord certainly includes bringing the law to bear upon their souls. Then I remember our pastor in California who, in in a particular sermon, gave a mini testimony of his conversion as a young person. When he was young and he disobeyed or did something wrong, his mom was faithful to tell him that he was a sinner. And the day finally came when he just cried out to his mom in childlike faith. and said, Mom, I don't want to be a sinner anymore. His mom had the blessing of explaining that, you know, you'll always be a sinner. But sinners can be saved by repenting of their sin and trusting in the sinless sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And our beloved Pastor Steele was converted at a very young age. Again, we'll never understand our need for a Savior unless we fully understand that we're sinners. And it's a combination of discipline and biblical instruction or the instruction of the Lord that helps you bring the good news about Jesus to children and adults of all ages. And while you're explaining the bad news, 
that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you're explaining the good news. That God demonstrated his love toward us. And while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. There may be someone here this morning who, who maybe has never fully understood that we are sinners. And because of your sin, that you're separated from God and under his judgment and under his wrath. Maybe you've thought all of your life that you're a good person. Maybe all of your life you've looked around you and you've, you feel like you've been accepted by God because you're just not that bad as you compare yourself to others. Maybe this morning you're under the realization that you were born a sinner. And since the standard is perfection, you fail. Today's the day of salvation. Admit your sin. Repent of your sin. Forsake your sin. Trust Christ to save you today. Believe in him today. Commit your life to him today. Follow him in baptism, proclaiming to the world your newfound faith in Christ. Let me close with one more P.S., I guess you'd say. As I said in the beginning, the subject of child rearing is vast. Spent all my attention this morning focused on one aspect of it, of it, raising your kids in the instruction of the Lord and leading them to the Lord Jesus. But I want you to know that it isn't just about discipline. In fact, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and with this I'll close. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and with this I'll close. Deuteronomy 6. I'll read from verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Raising your children in the instruction of the Lord is literally having this ongoing conversation about God and His Word and His ways and His wonders. And it begins with moms and dads first and foremost, according to verse 5, first moms and dads loving God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our mights. And these same moms and dads, knowing God's Word, you can't teach the words He's commanded unless we know them, right? What's so practical about this passage is that all of us talk about the things that we love. If we love fishing, we're going to talk about fishing in casual conversation. If we love hunting, we're going to talk about hunting in casual conversation, whether it's sports or family or home decor or shop, whatever it might be. We all talk about what we love. And what this is saying is when you love God and when you know and are learning His Word, you'll find yourself as you raise your kids in the instruction of the Lord and just your normal daily conversations, as you're walking, as you're driving in the car, at breakfast, at bedtime, creating these conversations, talking about what you love, talking about the Lord Jesus, talking about salvation, talking about what you're learning. All Paul's saying to us is, love God, serve Christ, instruct your kids, make sure they behave, 
tell them about Jesus over and over and over. And pray that God would have mercy on them, that he'd open their blind eyes, that they'd soften their hard hearts, bring them to saving faith. And it starts with you and I loving him first. As I was thinking through a conclusion here, I'm reminded that raising our kids is really similar to pastoring a church. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul encourages elders to first and foremost manage their home before they, they're actually in leadership. I am helpless to make anybody who shows up on a Sunday to believe. I have no power to cause anyone to trust Christ or respond to the truth. But that doesn't cause me to throw my hands up in despair. It deepens my trust in God. It moves me to depend more upon Him motivates me to study harder and to ask him to help me be more clear as I preach and reminds me the power is not me. It's, it's the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and convicting the people of God, and it's all about him. And as a parent, you, you do the exact same thing as you trust God to work in the hearts and lives of your children. You know, I, I, as I look at the congregation, I heard someone say uh, last week, you know, Rick, I wish I would have heard this when I was raising my kids. Well, let me encourage you for those who have already been down this path. If you're hearing this for the first time, certainly as you examine your heart, you may have feel that you failed as a parent. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But from this day forward, keep learning and keep growing and keep praying because he's still molding you. He's still conforming you. He's not left you. He's not forsaken you. And then ask him to open doors with this new knowledge that God's given you so you can share with others. And he'll receive all the glory. He'll receive all the praise. And he'll receive all the thanksgiving. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on all that you have done for us, Lord, through the love that you have for us and through the love that your son demonstrated toward us as he came and suffered and died for us. Father, we're reminded of the fact that as parents, our, our job is to do all we can to continue to point our children to Christ. We know we're helpless to make them believe, but we're in constant prayer asking you, Lord, to soften hard hearts to open blind eyes. And I pray that even now, as many of us this morning have uh, grandchildren and even have children who may be wayward, Lord, we pray that you continue to work in their hearts and lives, Father, to bring them to saving faith, that the word that they heard when they were younger would come to fruition. We thank you that your word never comes back void. We thank you that your spirit is here to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And Lord, we rest in your sovereign hand. We rest in the fact, God, that you're the one who calls people to yourself. And I pray that we would do all we can to simply obey you, to walk faithfully, Father, to cry out to you, to look to you for mercy and for grace. And we're so thankful that you grant it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.